At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. About 10 or 11 years ago, I sat at a table, a kitchen table, maybe similar, a little different than this. And I sat across from a toddler, my oldest son. We were having breakfast at the time, and his mother had made some delicious scrambled eggs that sat on his plate. We were getting ready to start our day, and I told my son, hey, before you get up from the table, you need to finish your food. It wasn't very much, just a little bit. I knew that he needed good nutrition for the day. I knew that he needed to um, eat everything that was given to him. But there was just one problem in our interaction across the table that day. My son did not want to eat those scrambled eggs. And so he sat there, defiantly refusing to eat them. I reminded him of the consequence that he was not going to be able to get up from the table until he had eaten those eggs. We went back and forth. I might have escalated slightly, as I might be prone to do. <laughs> but there was a showdown that morning in our household. Was he going to eat the eggs or not? Was he going to trust me or not? What was laid out was clear, but he just didn't want to do it. And so we sat there. A few minutes went by, a few more minutes, an hour, several hours, and I refused to let him get up from the table, and he refused to eat his eggs. We were at odds. Now, I asked him if I could share this story with you, and he told me that he could, but my wife gave the caveat that she had no part in this and is not responsible for the trauma that was instilled on our children, so... But that story lives in the lore of our household to this day of Isaiah and the eggs. <laughs> was he really going to trust that I knew better and was he willing to obey or not? Eventually he did. Eventually he ate his eggs and we got up from the table. I mean, he's still not there, so obviously he did. <laughs> but have you ever been in one of those moments have you ever been in a moment in your life where you knew what you should do, but you just didn't want to do it? Or worse, you did the exact opposite. You knew what was right. You knew what was best. You even knew what the right decision was. Someone told you, but you just didn't want to. We've all been in those moments, haven't we? I mean, I have. I've been in those moments as a little kid. I've been in those moments as an adult, and I've definitely been in those moments when it comes to my relationship with God, knowing what I'm supposed to do and not wanting to do it. And what happens in those moments? This morning, we're going to launch into a book that explores the journey of someone who's in that moment of being at odds with God. His name is Jonah. And his story is found in the book named after him. And for the next five weeks, we're going to look at his story to explore and help us learn and understand how do we navigate 
Moments where we're at odds with God, where we know what we should do, but we don't want to. What happens in those moments? Who is God in those moments? Who are we? How are we called to relate and engage a little bit? Jonah is going to help us with all of that. Now, the problem, though, as we step into Jonah, is that some of you might have already encountered Jonah in some way before this. Jonah kind of lives in the lore in our Christian context. It's kind of one of those fun children's stories that maybe some of you heard in Sunday school at a young age, or maybe you encountered some sort of expression of it in a book or something like that. Jonah was made famous by the Christian cartoon Veggie Tales in their major cinematic release, which subsequently caused them to flop. But that's a whole other discussion for another day. And when it comes to the book of Jonah, there's one image that dominates how we understand the book. What is Jonah about? It's about Jonah and the whale. The whale. But it's actually not. Jonah is not a children's story about a whale. It's not simply a story about a man in the belly of a fish for three days, although that's part of it. Jonah is actually about something much deeper. It's about the way God's people relate to God when they don't like what he does. Jonah is actually an incredible book. It's one of the most brilliant masterpieces of ancient literature that you will find both inside the Bible and without of it, outside of it. It's a masterful story told in a very satirical way. Satire is that form of writing or comedy where you take extreme examples to make your point. You highlight big things to draw out meaning. And Jonah is a book of satire. It centers around two main characters, Jonah and God. I told you the whale has very little to do with it, and it's not even a whale in the book, but we'll get to there later. And as we dig into Jonah, what we find is a story that highlights not only him, but all of us. It forces us to ask questions. How do we relate to God? How do we respond to his severe mercy? Do we really trust that he knows best when we're at odds with him? There is a ton for us to learn in the book of Jonah, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So this morning, we're just going to take some time to set up the book and explore one key facet of it that I think, as we engage it, will open up a lot of our understanding in the weeks to come. So with that said, we're just going to jump in and we're going to look at the first three verses and we're going to unpack some key ideas here. We're introduced to the two main players in the book in the very first sentence. Look at it with me. Now... The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So here we have our two main players. And there's a couple things you need to notice about these two main players as we step into the book. Notice who's introduced first in the book. It's not Jonah. It's the Lord. And it's the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Now, when you in your English Bibles see that word Lord, and that word is in all capital letters, which your English Bible should have, the writers are actually making a key uh, translation note for you. 
In the Old Testament, there is a covenant name that was used by the Hebrew people, that was given by God to the Hebrew people. It's signified by four key Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. And that, le- that name was a covenantal name. It was a special name that was used between God and his covenant people. We normally use that in our English vernacular, although no one knows the vowels for sure. We translate it as Yahweh. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's what's being translated, yod Hey vav Hey. It's God's covenant name. So what we see from the very beginning of Jonah is that we see a book that's about God, and it's about his covenant people. His covenant name is given at the beginning. And God's covenant word comes ultimately to the person of Jonah. We'll get to him in a second, but you kind of need to see what's happening at the beginning because the key phrase that's used, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, is actually a common way that God opens up other books in his word. It's the way that God often introduces, or God's word often introduces prophetic books, books that were written to speak to God's people. They were actually collected all within a collection in your Old Testament known as the prophets. And the prophets has two major sections. It has what's known as, the, we call it the major prophets and the minor prophets. I don't love that term. There's some key prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 prophets that were all collected into one scroll. Jonah is a part of that one scroll known as the Twelve. And by and large, the prophetic books record God's word through his prophets to his people. And many of them start the same way as Jonah does. Actually, you can see this if you just turn one page in your Bible, or maybe it's two pages, depending on your Bible list, to the book of Micah, another prophet of God. You see the book start this way. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham. And then what you have in the book of Micah is a recording of the words that came to God that were delivered to his people. But Jonah, of all the prophetic books that were written, stands apart. Because Jonah doesn't record God's words. There are God's words in the book. But it primarily records a story about Jonah and God. This is important. Because Jonah is what I have characterized as a representative prophet, meaning his words are important, but his story is even more important. Jonah is going to become a representation of God's people. In Jonah, we see the story of Israel, but we not only see the story of Israel, we see the story of all of humanity and how we relate to God when his word comes and we don't like it. At this point, you might be asking the question, well, who is Jonah? Well, the writer assumes, as we come to the book, that his audience has some understanding of Jonah. Notice he barely gives him an introduction. He just says, Jonah, son of Amittai. And you think, okay, well, who is that? Like, how am I supposed to even know who that is? Can I get some background information? Like, I don't know who Amittai is. Can I get where he came from? Can I like get what he did? What's his role? All of that. Well, the author's actually assuming that you have a little bit of knowledge because Jonah's introduced much earlier in the Old Testament. In fact, you find one other place where Jonah's named. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen. But understanding Jonah's background will help you understand a little bit of the book as we lean into it. This is his story found in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now, in 2 Kings, you have the story of Israel as it's divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. 
Okay, they were one nation, they divided into two, and they're reigned over by a series of kings, some good, some bad. And Kings records the stories about these kings, right? That's why it's called Kings. Makes sense. Look at in 2 Kings 14, 23, we're introduced to one of those kings. This is what it says. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So here's the king, Jeroboam, right? Here's the description of the king in 424. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, which was his father, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam's ruling over Israel. Jeroboam, good king, bad king. Bad king. Not only does he sin against the Lord, he leads God's people into sin. But look what happens during his reign. In verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Labahamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. So Jeroboam's a bad king, but in the midst of his reign, God shows mercy and actually expands Israel's territory back to its original boundaries under King Solomon, who was the great king. But look who's behind this moment of expansion. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer. So we know Jonah is a prophet. And the role of prophet in the Old Testament is a very specific one. The prophet went into God's presence, heard God's voice, and delivered God's word to his people. And what we know of Jonah is that he prophesied under an evil regime, one that practiced sin, and yet God, in his mercy, showed grace to the people of Israel by even expanding their borders. We don't know that Jonah called people to repentance or anything. All we know was that he prophesied the borders would expand, and they did. But we know that Jonah was a prophet. And so when you come to the story of Jonah, the author's assuming you're bringing some of that background information in. Jonah is a prophet, someone who goes before the Lord, hears his voice, brings it to his people, follows God's way. That's what you're expecting out of Jonah. Not only that, here's where the satire comes in, because you kind of already know where the story's going a little bit. We read it. Jonah has a very distinct name. Jonah's name means dove. And the dove is an image of God's peace, God's shalom, God's work on the earth, his mercy towards his people. Not only that, it's named that Jonah is the son of Amittai, which is rooted in the Hebrew word for faithfulness or faith. So you literally have Jonah the dove, the son of faithfulness, which at this point, if you're a little astute, you're like, this seems kind of ironic. And that's kind of the point. Jonah is meant to be an example of someone who represents God's people and God's purposes of mercy, God's purposes of flourishing. He's meant to be one who walks in faithfulness before God. But what we're going to see in this book and even in these first few verses is that's exactly the opposite of what Jonah does. Jonah moves towards spiritual defiance. And what we see in his story is what happens when we exist in spiritual defiance with God. And the question that we're going to explore just in these first two verses as we unpack the character of Jonah is simply the question, what does spiritual defiance actually look like? We need to understand it, and Jonah helps us to understand it so that we can engage it appropriately and grow in our relationship with God. And the first two verses give us some indication of what spiritual defiance looks like. We see it right away in verse 2. 
Look how it continues. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God comes to Jonah, and he gives Jonah a very specific call. He says, Arise and go. Those, there's kind of a forceful idea in that verb. Go quickly, as fast as you can. Go. Go where? To Nineveh. Now, this is a third character that enters the story that we've got to unpack a little bit, all right? Just so you can understand, because it's going to come back. Nineveh, in the text, is referred to as the great city, and it's called that for two kind of major reasons. One is, Nineveh, geopolitically, is actually a great city. It was probably estimated to be around a million people at the time, so it was a large city. It was one of the key capital cities of the burgeoning Assyrian Empire around this time, which means it was a dominant political city within the ancient Near East and during Jonah's day. It was a significant place, one of the centers of the world, like a New York or a Paris or a London or a Beijing, whatever it is, those kind of major hub cities, that was what Nineveh was. So it's a great city in terms of that. But that phrase, that great city, is actually used earlier in the Bible. Nineveh is spoken of at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 10, when they're listing out the table of nations in response to Noah coming off the boat and his sons. We won't look at it today. You can trust me if you want to look at it later. It's in Genesis chapter 10. But that same phrase is used, that great city. And in that story, Nineveh is first built by a man named Nimrod and is connected with another city, the city of Babel. Now, if you're a good Hebrew, you know that city. That city is where God, where people gathered to try to become like God and God scattered them across the earth. So Assyria, the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, is connected with Babel, which actually would become Babylon. And it stands as a city that was actually opposed to the way God was working in the world. It carries that theme throughout your Old Testament. So when it says it's a great city, it is great, but it's not that great of a place. In fact, it's a pretty evil place. That's why it says that God sends Jonah to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. Now that's a pretty significant phrase. It's often used in the scripture to highlight when someone's evil has gotten so bad that God can't take it anymore, so he decides to bring immediate judgment upon them. You see that phrase first used when Cain commits the first murder in the Bible and kills Abel. It says that Cain's sin came up before the Lord. It's used a few chapters later in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that their sin had gotten so bad that it came up before the Lord, and God decided, I need to bring judgment against these people because they're destroying my creation in such a way that it can't continue. That's what's happening at Nineveh. They're literally so evil that God's like, I got to put a stop to this. And when you study ancient Nineveh and Assyria, they were. One commentator described them as one of the ancient terrorist states. One of the things that Nineveh would do, just to give you an idea of how terrible they were, what they would do in Nineveh is when they would go in and conquer a new city, what they would do is they would take the conquered victims, kill them, they would skin them, sometimes alive, and they would hang their skins over the city walls as a testimony to everyone else that they better not mess with Nineveh and Assyria. They're known for torture. I mean, hideous stuff that you look at and you're like, oh, I can't even believe you would do that, right? Like, if I keep going, I might make your stomach upset. And we all know we've got good Super Bowl food to eat tonight, so I don't want to do that, right? But I mean, this, they're like the epitome of evil. They're terrible, 
And their evil's gotten so bad, God's like, I've got to do with it. And so he's going to send Jonah to go out and call against them, to proclaim his judgment against this city. And if you're the reader, you're naturally thinking, yes, God, you should do that. They're bad. They deserve it. But in this initial story of Jonah, as we kind of unpack his idea of spiritual defiance, we see one of the key things of where spiritual defiance finds its root. And it's simply this, that I am the Lord's servant and I know what the Lord wants. Right? That's the key understanding. Jonah begins with a very clear call. God says, this is what you're going to do. Get up, go to the city, proclaim that my judgment is coming against them. He doesn't mince words. It's not a long, drawn-out thing. He just says, this is what you need to do, Jonah. And often when it comes to our own issues of spiritual defiance, as we will see, our spiritual defiance takes roots in the same thing. Like Jonah, we are God's servants. We have been given God's word. We are called to live in such a way to follow and obey what God calls us to do. And spiritual defiance doesn't take its root in what we don't understand. It takes its root in what we do understand, but don't necessarily like. What's clear at the beginning and where Jonah's spiritual defiance finds its center is that he knows what God wants. God's word is in fact clear. That's the same root of all of our defiance. One of the stories I learned from my dad that I've taught my own children when it comes to our own issues of defiance is the story of Sun Tzu and the art of war. Sun Tzu is a famous mastermind military strategist. And there's a famous story of Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War, where a famous king asked Sun Tzu to come and to train his armies. But he wanted to make sure that Sun Tzu's tactics would actually work. So he went to Sun Tzu and he said, I would like for you to come and I'd like for you to train all the women in my palace first. And if your tactics work, then I'll let you train my army. This is a long, long time ago. So Sun Tzu comes to the castle. This is how the story goes. He comes, they gather all the women out in the courtyard. He appoints two key women to kind of be in part of different sections of them. And Sun Tzu explains to them, I'm going to give you several directions and I'm going to expect you to follow. If I say turn left, turn to the left. If I say turn to the right, turn forward, turn right. If I say turn around, turn around, right? Very simple, basic directions. And the story goes in the book that Sun Tzu uh, gives his first command, turn to the left. And immediately all the women burst out laughing. And don't respond. And the story goes that Sun Tzu says, if the words of the command, here's the quote from the book, if the words of the command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, then the general is to blame. So he starts drilling them again. He goes back over his instructions. He gives them clarity. And then he says, turn left. And again, the story goes that all the women burst out laughing. Nobody turns to the left. And Sun Tzu famously responds in the, wor- in the thing, if the words of the command are not clear and distinct, if orders are not thoroughly understood, the general is to blame. But if his orders are clear and the soldiers nevertheless disobey, then it is the fault of their officers. And in the story, he goes on to punish the key officers. And then all of a sudden they realize he's serious. And the next time he gives his command, they all turn to the left. But it's, in, in my household, it's become kind of a, a way in my children where we work through things. Sometimes I'll give them a direction. They might not obey. And sometimes I'll ask them, were my instructions clear? Did you understand what my expectation was? And if they say no, then I'll reiterate to them, okay, well, I said, eat your eggs or you will not get up from the table. Right? Like, that's clear. 
But if I ask them that question and they come back to me and they say like, well, yeah, I understood. Well, then it's your fault. Now we've stepped into disobedience because the command was clear and you chose to disobey. That's the root of spiritual defiance. Spiritual defiance is not, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of what God has said. Spiritual defiance is, I know what God said. I'm clear. I'm his. If, if you're here this morning and you're spiritually seeking and trying to discern if Christianity is true, if it's worth giving your life towards, you might be in a place of questioning or exploring. We want to invite you into that journey. The call of spiritual defiance, it applies to you, yes, but it especially applies to those of us that know God's word, that understand it, and who have chosen to say, in this area of my life, I simply will not follow. I won't do it. And sometimes we convince ourselves that God's word's more confusing than it is. Like, well, I just, I don't really understand that ethic. I'm like, that's, like Jesus said it, it's there. But that's the root. That's the root of spiritual defiance, right? I know God's word. I know I'm the Lord's servant. I know what the Lord wants. But look how Jonah then responds, because here's kind of the key second part. So follow the text with me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose. You think, okay, great. God told Jonah to rise. Go to Nineveh. Jonah rises. Awesome. What's it say next? To flee. Uh-oh. Hold on, Jonah. Where are you going? To flee to where? Well, continue. To Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it, and go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, you think, what's the big deal? Is this on the way to Nineveh? How's the story? Well, from the moment it says that Jonah chose to flee to Tarshish, you see a problem in the text, which is that God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is about a 300-mile journey northeast of Jerusalem, where Jonah is. Tarshish is about a 3,500-mile journey in the opposite direction. They're not exactly sure where Tarshish is. They have several ideas. Um, they have, I kind of narrowed it down to a few different places, but they kind of know the general area of where Tarshish is, and I want to show you it on the map, right? So you see Jerusalem all the way over there on your right Nineveh is just northeast of that slightly. Tarshish is all the way at the opposite end of the known world at the time. So it's literally if like God told you, all right, I want you to go to Cleveland, and you were like, I'm going to San Francisco. That, that's the idea. And the, the, the author actually wants you to recognize how significant it is that he's going to Tarshish. He repeats it multiple times, and he actually builds this whole verse towards the center. This verse is actually a chiasm, where it's, that's a Hebrew way of writing in which you use parallel lines to move to a center. I'll show it to you so you can see it, right? What does Jonah do? He flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then it makes the point. He goes down to Joppa, which is fine. He finds a ship to go to Tarshish. He pays the fare for the ship. He goes down into the ship to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, what's Jonah's job? Jonah's job is he's a prophet. His job is to go into the presence of the Lord. And not only that, Jonah's a smart enough prophet, he knows his Old Testament, that you can't escape the presence of the Lord. So why is he going to, jo or to Tarshish? Because he doesn't want to do what God told him to do. 
and he's actually willing to go the entire opposite direction. Not only that, the phrase used here where it says he paid the fare, many commentators think that's not like he paid a ticket. He actually paid for the whole boat. That's the idea. Like he was willing at great expense to himself to hire a boat to get as far away from God's presence at the same time. This is spiritual defiance. And spiritual defiance is, I know what God wants, but I am not going to do it. Now, naturally, as the reader, you're going to ask, why is Jonah so obstinate against God? The writer isn't going to tell you now. He's going to come back around to that later and kind of leave that intention. So I'm not going to circle. But all to say that Jonah, this is the point you're going to see throughout the book. The whole thing comes down to the fact that Jonah thinks he knows better than God. God has given Jonah a clear command. And Jonah essentially says, I don't want to do that. I know better than you. In fact, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the exact opposite thing. Jonah's story highlights the tension of spiritual defiance, which is when we find ourselves in places where we think we know more than God. And so we act in disobedience towards him. Jonah forces us to face the confrontation between God's vision of the good life and our vision of the good life. I don't want to thank Tim Mackey, Dr. Tim Mackey, for helping me see this because I think he has a great point on this. But in many ways, the reality of the beginning of Jonah's story forces the question, who knows better, God or Jonah? Is Jonah going to trust God that he knows better? No, he obviously moves in the exact opposite direction. You see, all of us have an understanding of what the good life is. I've used that phrase around here before, but if you're unfamiliar with that, what I mean is that we were created and designed for a life that's whole and purposeful and full and in harmony with God and creation and all of that. that that's the vision that God, we, we all long for it. We feel it and the cause that we have for justice and righteousness and integrity and all these sorts of things. We're, we're designed for the good life. The crux question of the good life is who defines what the good life is and how it is achieved? Do we get to define it, or does God get to define it? And the crux tension that all of us face as human beings is, do we trust God's vision or our vision? You go all the way back to the garden, and the very first human beings, and they're placed in a garden, and they're given one tree not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at some point, they decide, the serpent comes along and says, well, you can be like God if you just eat of the tree. Now, the not tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that idea isn't the idea of knowing good and evil. It's the idea of determining. That's the sort of knowledge. And the core temptation we face as human beings is, who gets to define reality in life? Do I get to define it? Or does God get to define it? And the first sin is the human beings coming along and saying, I get to define it. You told me not to eat the tree. I'm going to eat the tree. And that's replayed here in Jonah. You say go, I'm going the opposite direction. I think I know better than you. And what you want to happen, I don't want to see happen. That's the root of spiritual defiance. And it's the challenge, unfortunately, that we all face in our daily lives. Spiritual defiance, listen, spiritual defiance is not found in the areas that you agree with God's word. It's found in the areas where you don't agree with God's word or you don't want to. That's the issue. You know it, but you don't want to believe it. 
You don't want to trust it. You don't want to obey it. And the challenge of Jonah is what happens in those moments when we're at odds with God. And what Jonah wants to teach us and show us is that when we're in a place of spiritual defiance, it gets us nowhere. But the reality is we all face those on a regular basis. I remember around the same time that I sat at the table with my son, sitting across another table from a student at the University of Akron. We were at the Starbucks in the student union. And I remember that day we sat and talked. He was struggling because he'd been fooling around with his girlfriend, crossing a line that he shouldn't. And so we decided to talk about it that one day. And I sat across from him at the table and explained to him God's design and purpose for sexuality, that God created sex, that it's good, but it's meant to be engaged in the context between a husband and wife and covenant relationship, that that's the best place for it. And anything outside of that actually is not great for human flourishing and can create a lot of damage and pain and hurt. And we talked through his wrestling and questions. But at the end of the day, it was clear to me in that discussion and to him, God does not want you to keep fooling around with your girlfriend. We don't need to have a hypothetical or philosophical debate on God's sexual ethic. Scripture is very clear on it. But I remember sitting there that day because he didn't really want to follow God's call. I remember one moment he put his head down on the table when I challenged him to say, are you going to follow what God says or are you just going to keep doing your own thing? It was an awkward moment. We sat there in silence with his head on the table. Even got more awkward when another student in the ministry that we were part of came and sat down next to him and neither one of us was talking for like three minutes. At some point, he just got so awkward, he got up and left. That was weird. (laughs) But I remember, I remember the challenge. And what actually broke my heart is that I tried to encourage him to say, hey, I've been in that seat before. I walked that path of not following God's call to pursue his vision of what sexuality should be. And I felt the pain of what happens when you walk that road. Don't go down that road. But I watched as that student got up from that table and chose to keep fooling around with his girlfriend. And I chose over the years ahead as he continued to make sex more of an idol, bigger than God. I watched him walk away from his community and his faith I watched when he came back several years later and hurt one of my good friends. And it still breaks my heart to this day to see the choice he could have made and where defiance gets you. When you find yourself at odds with God, defiance doesn't get you anywhere. But the reality is, friends, that all of us All of us have sat in this chair. All of us have parts in our lives where we sit across from the God of the universe, we know his word, and we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give that up. I like that too much. I find too much joy in that and not enough in you, so I'm going to keep doing 
the very thing that you tell me not to. And you know what puts us in this seat? You know why we sit in these places at odds with God? Because we think we know better. We think we should get to determine what our lives are. The core root problem of sin is pride. And we live in a world swimming with it. I I was just having a conversation this week with a friend of mine, and they were telling me how they were reading a book um, about business. And in this book, the person was sharing how they'd been around the world and they'd seen all these different cultures and all these different religions. And then they said, well, I just decided to take the best of all those religions and then I just kind of live that out, the kind of best parts. And that's kind of my, my way of living my life. And it was funny because we were just sitting there talking and it like dawned on me. I was like, well, what's underneath that? Who gets to determine what the best parts of every religion are? Well, she does. She's the one that comes along and says, I know better. Under every issue of tolerance is a root issue of pride that says, I know better than God. If God says no and I feel like it should be yes, who's he to tell me what to do? Who's he to determine the reality of the world? I get to choose. You want me to go to Tarshish? Screw you, God. I'm going to sleep who I want to sleep with. I'm going to determine what ethical morality should be. I'm going to determine that whatever is true is true for me. And underneath it all is the same issue that's underneath Jonah. I know better than God. I don't want to do what you want to do. And the sad reality is all of us, and I'm not taking myself out of that, I've been in this seat many times, have areas of our lives where we sit in spiritual defiance before God. And we're just not willing to admit it. And that's an awkward place to be. I mean, it feels awkward right now in this room. We can admit that, right? But that's what spiritual defiance does. It doesn't get us anywhere. And the reality of the story of Jonah is that you're going to continue to find out is that we're all Jonah. The reason it resonates so much is because that's the root problem of our sinfulness. And no matter what we try to do, We don't solve that problem. But the good news of the book of Jonah is it's going to drive you to look ultimately for someone else. That Jonah is going to cause you to look for another Jonah, a greater Jonah. And the good news of the rest of the story of the Bible is there is a greater Jonah that comes. There's another prophet from Galilee that God sends and gives his word and commands to go and speak to a rebellious, sinful people. His name was Jesus. And he was willing to be obedient to the call of God. He was willing to speak what God told him to speak. He didn't walk in defiance. He walked in perfect obedience to what God had called him to do. Man, we're all Jonah But the good news of the gospel is there's a greater Jonah that's here. And that Jonah has come, that greater Jonah has come to do something about the problem of spiritual defiance in each one of us. 
Because the good news of the gospel is that although Jesus was in this seat, although Jesus is the one who gets to determine what's true and real in the world, it's Jesus who sits across from us in our spiritual defiance. And he could sit there and say, hey, I'm going to leave you in that place because you're a rebellious, hard-hearted people who run from me. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved us enough in Jesus Christ that Jesus got up from his seat in heaven. He got up from his table with his father and he came down into earth. And not only that, he died for our our spiritual rebellion. Like he went to death so that our spiritual defiance could be covered. And then he rose again so that you and I could be filled with the spirit of God, move from spiritual defiance into spiritual obedience. Jesus comes into our seat at the table of spiritual defiance and says, I'll take your place. I'll take your punishment. I'll take the odds that you suffer in opposition of God for you so that you can have a seat at another table the table of relationship, the table of eternity, the table of fellowship with God forever. Revelation 19 reminds us that if you're in Christ Jesus, there's another table destined for you. It says, blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus took the seat at the table of spiritual defiance so that you could have a seat at the table of spiritual fellowship for eternity. That's the truth of the gospel. That's why he's the greater Jonah. I'm glad somebody's excited about that. But Jesus loves us enough to not leave us continually at the seat of spiritual defiance, refusing to eat our eggs because he knows that's not what's best for us. He actually invites us to turn from those things, to stop being at odds with God and start to embrace and allow God to work in the hardest parts of our hearts. And that's, in some ways, the challenge of the story of Jonah that we're going to see over the next few weeks. Do we trust God enough to give up our spiritual defiance and to continue to walk in obedience towards him? My hope and prayer is that we are. So what are the areas in your heart that you're still defiant about? What are the areas in your life that you think like, oh, God, I'm not letting you touch that one. You want to know where you're spiritually defiant? Look at your biggest struggles. Look at the patterns of your life that you come back to time and time again that feels like it puts you at odds with God. And there might be somewhere underneath there that you say, I don't think I really want to follow you there. The good news is Jesus wants to heal that part too. And the book of Jonah is going to show us that. Let me pray for us. Father, we sit in this moment recognizing that all of us All of us are prone to spiritual defiance. Every single one of us in this room, God, has parts, and everyone listening to me online too, have parts of their heart that they have just not surrendered to you. I know I do, Lord. I don't want that to be the case. I'm thankful for Christ who comes to take us from the seat of spiritual defiance and put us in the seat of spiritual relationship and fellowship. I'm thankful, Jesus, that you cover our sin as we've celebrated already in this service. I'm thankful that you've made a way for us to know your spirit. I'm thankful for the gift of conviction that calls us out of our stubbornness. I'm thankful for the gift of confession that we can bring that to light with others. And I'm thankful that you heal those parts. 
So Lord, as you, as you awaken us to those places of defiance, I pray that you would help move us through those places back to the gospel and truth of Jesus Christ. And would you use this book to help that? Would you open us right now to the reality of your presence? Don't let us be like Jonah and run from your presence. Let us instead move towards it in the way that you're working in us right now, I pray. Would you move among us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.